Our message this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 1. These are the words of God. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Our God and Father, we pray, open your word to us by the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, preach to us by the Holy Spirit that we would be built up, convicted, and equipped to be your faithful people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that Christianity brought to the world was a new view of strength. Specifically, the view that true strength is measured not by contempt toward the weak, but compassion for the weak. Not by oppression or taking advantage of the weak, but by protecting and delivering the weak. This attitude of compassion and protection toward victims was in stark contrast to the cruelty of the ancient pagan world. This Christian ethic by which a nation and any people is measured by whether it is genuinely concerned to protect true victims still affects the Western world today, even though Christianity has ceased to provide the worldview for the Western world. So we still see modern politics couched in terms of who protects victims and who does not. And we see a lot of finger pointing back and forth. A lot of politics, both election politics and public policy of of political parties once elected, revolves around who are officially identified as victims, who are officially identified as oppressors, and what policies are put forward to stop the oppression. The process of correctly identifying victims and oppressors and of righteously stopping oppressors and rescuing victims is a biblical process. But everyone claims today to be on the right side of this process. Every modern nation and every political party justifies itself and condemns those who differ as it, as it pertains to this whole process of victims and victimhood. Now this is what Solomon is getting at in our text. Fallen man's hypocrisy in delivering the oppressed. This is something fallen man always professes to do, but never actually does. And this is what we might call the the politics of victimhood. And our culture is awash in it. Our culture is awash in the politics of victimhood, and it gets very, very confusing in our day. So we need to bring biblical light to this subject. A righteous society will be marked by three things with regard to victims and oppression. Number one, true identification of victims and oppressors from God's perspective. Number two, sincere efforts to deliver the victims of oppression and to bring oppressors to justice. Number three, righteous results, which sees victims of oppression uh, actually benefited and delivered, and oppressors actually stopped. On the other hand, an unrighteous society will also be marked by three things. Number one, manipulative, self-serving labeling of victims. Number two, hypocritical self-serving efforts to deliver. And number three, self-serving results, which sees victims not really helped, but the helpers helped 
immensely. So the initial question for us from God's perspective is, are the victims and oppressors correctly identified according to his truth? Or are they uh, manipulatively mislabeled for self-serving reasons? And because there can be many victims in a society, many uh, uh, oppressors in a large society such as ours at any given time, we should begin with one at one place, and that is by identifying the truest victims, those who are the most victims. And we can know that by looking at three things. Who are those who are most defenseless? Number two, who are those who have the most to lose? And number three, who are the most numerous when it comes to victims? We need to ask these three questions identify who the truest victims, the biggest victims in our society are, and ask ourselves the questions, are those victims being protected? What are we doing about them? Let us start there. We may not be able to sort out all the victimization and oppression in our society right away, but certainly we can identify those who are most victimized and start there. And finally, we need to ask ourselves, what is the end result of social policies designed to protect those who have been identified as victims by our society? Are those victims actually protected? Or is their victimhood perpetuated in a different form? And who benefits from the policies designed to protect them? Do the victims themselves actually benefit? Or does someone else benefit, and if so, who, by these righteous measures, I would submit that America does not grade out well at all. Let's start with the simple question that should be the easiest one to answer. Who are the biggest victims in our society? Who are the most victimized? Who are the truest victims? Well, we have identified three factors. Who is the most defenseless? Who has the most to lose? And who are the most numerous? So let's answer those questions for America today. Who is the most defenseless? Without question, it is children in the womb. A baby is the very definition of defenselessness. And when you have a baby still in the womb, then you take defenseless to a whole new level. You cannot get more defenseless. A baby in the womb cannot even cry out. It cannot defend itself in any way. And more importantly for our modern society, it cannot vote or donate money or community organize or protest or give photo ops or sound bites. All the rest of the victims, true, real and imagined in our society, can do one or more of those things, which makes them attractive to politicians. If they can vote, they can be organized and used. But if they can't vote, if they can't be organized, if they can't protest, then they offer no inherent political benefit. They bring absolutely nothing to the table, which makes them political pariahs. But it also makes them true victims. And true victims, real victims, helpless victims, are the dividing line between righteous government and self-righteous politics. 
between true social justice and Machiavellian social justice. Second question, who has the most to lose? Again, it is children in the womb. For the fundamental right being taken from them is the greatest fundamental right of all, life. <clears throat> the Declaration of Independence declared these rights to be given by our Creator and therefore to be inalienable. Three, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Of these three, life is in a category by itself. For life is the necessary precondition to the other two inalienable rights. Without life, you cannot have liberty and you cannot pursue happiness. Moreover, the other rights, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, can be restored. Life cannot. It can only be protected or not. Once lost, it is lost forever, societally speaking. Now, God can and does restore life through the gospel, but we cannot. We can restore liberty and the opportunity to pursue happiness, but we cannot restore life. We can only protect it. With liberty and the freedom to pursue happiness, we can repent of the failure to protect them by restoring them. An example would be the abolishing of slavery. Obviously, that does not restore past liberty that was lost or past freedom to pursue happiness that was lost. But what we are restoring is the same thing that was lost. But with life, we cannot repent by restoring it or even restoring the same thing that was lost. We can only repent by starting to protect it now and into the future. Children in the womb is the only class of victims in our society who are being deprived of life, the most fundamental right of all. The only comparable group would be victims of homicide. They too have been deprived of life. But they typically have been so deprived by the wrongful actions of an individual. And we show our societal righteousness by requiring the life of the perpetrator as God commands. When we do this, the blood is not on society's hands, and God does not require it of us. But with children in the womb, their lives are being taken with the approval and the assistance of society, in direct contravention not only of the Word of God, but of the Declaration of Independence. The right to take their lives is being protected by our society and our government. This blood is on our hands. It is on America's hands, and God will require it of us. And many homicide victims, while they do not, did not deserve to die, nevertheless did something to contribute to the situation which led to their death. Not a few of them were themselves engaged in criminal activity. This is how many homicides occur, a falling out or betrayal among those engaged in criminal activity. Many others did something to place themselves in harm's way by being in and around criminal activity. Again, they did not deserve to die, but they did make choices that played into the risks that came upon them. Now, I'm not being callous here. I am simply pointing out that none of those complicating factors is true of children killed in the womb. 
They made no such choices. They chose not their mother, nor their father, nor what environment they lived in, or who they associated with. They simply lived and sought to live. They are the only victims in our society who have no choice whatsoever, nor any ability to take the least of protective actions. A newborn child can at least cry. A baby in the womb cannot even do that. And there is a further distinction between victims of homicide and children killed in the womb, and that is the sheer numbers. And that leads us to question number three. Which victims in our society are most numerous? To give you some perspective on the number of babies killed in the womb, let's take the year 2009, which is a recent year for which we have complete statistics. In 2009, the number of homicides in the United States was 16,591. The number of abortions was over 1.2 million. To put abortion in further perspective, consider that the number of war deaths in U.S. history from 1776, the War for Independence, also including the Civil War, World Wars I and II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Persian Gulf War, as well the more recent combat actions in Iraq and Afghanistan, the number of war deaths in U.S. history is just over 1.11 million. That's less than the number of abortions in 2009 alone. The Nazis in the Holocaust killed some 11 million people, including some 6 million Jews. But that does not begin to compare with the 56 million babies in the womb killed since Roe v. Wade in 1973. So by every measure, defenselessness, most to lose, and most numerous, babies in the womb are by far the number one victim group in America. What does this mean? It means that here with children in the womb is where we must start if we are at all serious about protecting victims instead of just talking about it. If we do not protect them, it means one thing. We as a society do not really care about victims. It means that we do not really care about social justice. It means that as long as babies are being killed and harvested in the womb, America needs to shut her mouth about social justice because she doesn't care a thing about it. And this is confirmed when we remember what we saw earlier. A righteous society will be marked by a true identification of victims and oppressors from God's perspective, by sincere efforts to help them, and by righteous results which see victims actually benefited. And an unrighteous society will be marked by a manipulative, self-serving labeling of victims, hypocritical efforts to help, and self-serving results which sees victims not really help, but the helpers immensely helped. What do we see in our country today? We see the latter. We see all the elements of an unrighteous nation. First, the government does nothing to protect by far the biggest victim group, children in the womb. I've already pointed that out. The government only identifies and helps victims who can vote, who can be organized into a grievance group, and who can protest for the media, 
for photo ops and sound bites. Victims who cannot do these things, in other words, the truest victims, need not apply. They are defined by our country as non-victims, indeed non-persons. Second, the results of official helping of victims in our country is self-serving to the government and unhelpful to the victims in many cases, even assuming for the purpose of argument that they truly are victims. What do we see as a result of our government's actions to help vict uh, victims? We see an increasing splintering of our society into grievance groups pitted against one another. We see the incentivization of people to view themselves as, uh, and others not as individuals, but solely as members or non-members of a particular grievance group that the government has defined and in many instances created. We see increasing dependence of groups, especially the so-called victim groups, on the government. We see increasing marginalization and weakening of God-ordained intermediate social structures between the individual and the central government. Structures such as the family, the church, the local community. We see constantly create the creation of vacuums in our society as these social structures are weakened and begin to disappear altogether with the central government filling the vacuum in every single case. This is how you enslave a democratic people. This is how you render them unable and unwilling to resist. And all of this calls into question the motives of the modern politics of victimhood. At some point, the political planners must be held to intend the results of their policies. It has been 40 years since Roe versus Wade. It has been 50 years since the advent of the great society and the wide-scale dependence on the government that it has incentivized and brought about. That is more than enough time for government officials and social planners to well understand the outcomes of their policies. It is clear at this point that they intend them. As the church, as Jesus' disciples, we must be a true society, a godly society, a righteous society in microcosm. We must be a city on a hill. The church must be a community, indeed a bunch of communities, as we look at individual churches, where victims are truly identified and stood up for, where efforts to help are sincere and guided by biblical principle, and where the outcome is true life and liberty, not perpetual dependence and manipulation. After all, the real essence of slavery is dependence. Now, in this context, and as we look at our calling to be a city on a hill in this particular environment, I want to personally say thank you to all of the Christian mothers who are here. I want to thank you, each one, for losing your life so that you might find it. Muslim women... And secular women stop having children as soon as they come in contact with modernity. 
which practically speaking, as soon as they encounter education to any appreciable degree. This is why Islam depends upon keeping women in a cocoon of the ancient pagan world. The only women who were not cocooned, who were highly educated, highly gifted, vibrant, and who have given their lives that their children may live and thrive is Christian women. And Christian women do it with their eyes open. They do not do it because they have been isolated in a cocoon of the ancient pagan world. They do it because they believe in the God who did the same thing, who gave his life that others might live. They understand that this is life. This is the life of God and it is the only life that is. It is the way of life. I want to thank each one of you, Christian women, Christian mothers. Thank you for believing God. Thank you for following God in the midst of a generation that heaps scorn upon you. Great is your reward in heaven. And sweet are the foretastes that you will have of heaven even here in this evil generation. And I want to say thank you to Christian fathers. Thank you to Christian men who do not desire women in general, but one woman in particular. Thank you for binding yourself and pledging yourself to this woman. Thank you for the sacrifice of having children. There is no more anti-me thing you can do in this world than having a child and raising it in any kind of a loving way. Fathers, thank you for being faithful, for providing for your wives and your children, for working hard with your wives to say to your children, in essence, the message of the gospel, which is my life for yours. Now, I do want to say this also, because in our current environment, I was recently at, at a conference and a Christian leader there talked about a conversation with an abortion provider. And I don't know if these remarks were exaggerated or not. I'm just going to relay them as they were related to us. And that is the abortion provider said that a lot of the women who came to them were professing Christians. And a lot of the women, and they did not pretend that it wasn't wrong. They knew it was wrong. But. I can't ruin my life. But. Fill in the blank. Me, me takes precedence over the life of this child that I know God has created and I know it is wrong to take. This me worship is the consuming idol of our culture and it is very, very powerful. So we are going to have in the church, we're going to have women who in their past had an abortion and have come to know better have come to faith in Christ, or else if they had faith for it, have been convicted of this and have repented of this. I want to assure all of those women, I, I don't know everybody's history here, there could be, could be the, the case here. I want you to know that your forgiveness in Christ is 100%. While having an abortion is a, is a grave evil, it's not the unforgivable sin. 
the only unforgivable sin is a lifetime of hardness. And turning away from the gospel, turning away from the message of Christ. That's the unforgivable sin. Nothing else is. Whatever your past, whatever your past sins, let me assure you, your sin is not special. It's not too big for Jesus. Jesus forgives completely and cleanses completely and 100%. So to all of you, I want to say, embrace life. We need to understand that you cannot embrace God without embracing life. You cannot embrace the gospel without embracing life. You cannot embrace forgiveness for yourself without embracing life. And you cannot receive life without giving life. You cannot receive life without giving your life for life. That is the gospel. And when you come to Christ, when you come into the gospel, you will begin to live this. You must begin to live this or you know not the life of God or the life of Christ. Christ gave his life for our life. You cannot embrace Christ without doing the same. This is why Jesus says in so many words that saving your life, putting your happiness first as you see it, putting your fulfillment first as you see it, holding on to it, this is precisely death. That is precisely the attitude of Satan. Losing your life, for Christ's sake, that is precisely life. And there is no other way. The modern idol of America, me, 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 my happiness, my fulfillment. And, you know, and it's, an amazing to, it's amazing to me because I've already said that there's no more anti-me thing that you can do than, than have a child and raise it in a, in a, in a truly loving way. As one of our elders has said, you're talking about 20 plus years of complete sacrifice if, if you want to do this in the right and biblical way. But our society has done its best to turn even having a child and raising it into a me thing. I think about these articles I see. I need to stop looking at the magazine headlines as I go through the grocery store line. But these articles I see of these Hollywood stars and other uh, celebrities in our culture who are wealthy and famous, who, you know, they haven't had any children. A lot of them aren't even married, but they decide they're going to have a child. A woman decides she's going to have a child, not going to get married, doesn't have a husband done with that. She's going to have a child because she wants the experience. She wants the birthing experience. She wants the mothering experience. It's like, it, even that's about her. Even that's about me. That's what we've come to. It's crazy. That is the way of death. And young people, I've been talking to you recently directly. I'm telling you, this me, this me, me, me stuff that our culture is awash in, you're swimming in it. You cannot avoid it. It is going to affect you. It has affected you. It's affected everyone here. It's affected me. We can't help it because we've been breathing it in and out for years. But young people, you have to understand that when you imbibe this whole me 
religion. You're imbibing the religion of Satan. Satan is about me. And you're imbibing the way of death. Losing your life, that is giving up your life the way you see it, the way you would run it, your understanding of happiness, your understanding of fulfillment, trading all of that in and saying, Jesus, I want to live for you. I lose my life for your sake. I want whatever life you give me. That's what I want. Whatever life you give me, that is what I choose. That is the only way of life. Because that is the attitude of God himself who gave his life for our life. Now just in the last week or so, we have had uh, released publicly over the internet and so forth videos taken of high officials within Planned Parenthood in which they are negotiating with would-be uh, body part buyers for the price of various organs that are harvested of babies that are aborted. And in one case, it's the medical director. In another case, it's another uh, high official talking about how they carefully select how they will kill this child, where they're going to crush above, below, so they can harvest this organ, that organ, the other organ. This presents both a great opportunity and also a severe challenge to our country. The opportunity it is is, is to, to see the kind of thing that's going on, to see what this is really about. It is easy for us to avert our eyes to these kind of things. I mean, it doesn't happen out in the streets. It doesn't happen in your home. It doesn't happen in your workplace. It doesn't happen here at church. We don't see this stuff. It happens behind clinical walls. We don't see any of it. And it's easy to pretend like it's not really there. And, and, and that's easy for us to, to, to kind of have that mentality as Christians. How much more easy is it for those who do not believe? But I want you to remember that the same thing was true of Auschwitz. Jews weren't being killed and experimented on out in the streets or in people's homes or in their communities. It was all behind clinical walls. It was all being directed by doctors. It could all be described in clinical language. And the Nazis used a lot of euphemisms to cover up what was really going on. But we do not give the German people living at that time a pass, do we? We say, you had to know something. Maybe you didn't see it, but you had to know something was going on. And you put it out of your minds, and we're pretty severe with them. We're hypocritical. Because we do the same thing. But in these Planned Parenthood videos, suddenly we see. We can't say we didn't see. We see. Now this is an opportunity for us as Christians, and I want to encourage you to keep the drum beat up. 
keep this before our society. Use social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or whatever you have, when you see an article or a blog post or a poster or something like that relating to this, putting out this message, share it, like it, forward it, share it, put it out there, keep that drum beat up. Don't allow our society to so quickly just move on and forget it. And the reason why that is important is not only because we really want to be a righteous society and actually care about the greatest victims in our society, which really defines our souls, um, but also that God will hold us accountable because now we saw. And if we don't respond to this, our judgment will be severe indeed. I present all of these thoughts to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.